Good evening, everyone. <laughs> I'm Pastor Mark, and this is E3, and uh, this is the uh, conclusion of this series as we've been going through the, the book that John Bickley and I worked on called The Six Symbols of the Gospel. And just to recap uh, the journey that we've been on, uh, we, we believe that the gospel has uh, been trimmed down to a, a, a point that that it has lost a lot of its context. And, and over the past six weeks, we have hopefully painted a picture of the fullness of the gospel. We uh, looked in the first week, we looked at the story of Israel as symbolized by uh, the Star of David and how that gives us the context for the life of Jesus and what he did for us. Then the following week, we looked at the Cairo, the two Greek letters uh, that are the first two Greek letters of Jesus, or Christ's name, and how that was a symbol, one of the most ancient symbols of Christianity, and looked at the, the impact and the meaning behind Jesus' life and how Jesus didn't just come to die, but he also showed us how to live. Then we looked at the cross and, and what the atonement actually meant. And then the resurrection, John Bickley taught on that and did a great job. And then we uh, looked at the church and what our mission was. And then last week we looked at heaven and what is a true biblical uh, view of heaven and what heaven is and what heaven is not. And today what I'd like to do this evening is to wrap this series all up with the conclusion of just going through a gospel presentation. Now, I believe a biblical gospel presentation uh, actually begins uh, with in Genesis uh, chapter 3 or even uh, before then and goes all the way to Revelation and to give us the fullness of the understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ. And one of the problems is when people hear gospel presentation, they actually uh, hear salvation message. And I believe that Jesus gave uh, us a, a, a directive not to make converts, but to make disciples of Jesus. And one of the cool things that we're going to be doing this, this evening is while I'm speaking, uh, Carol is here. Say hi, Carol. Uh, Carol is actually going to be painting and, and all... Uh, we had two different artists this morning. We had uh, Hayes Laird, and we had Paula at the 11, and uh, just did a wonderful job. And uh, we have Carol, who's going to do a wonderful job. And they, all three of them have been outside of their element. Uh, it's very difficult to live paint and, and things like that. And, but it's been a beautiful experience. And I know some of you might be sitting there going like, you know, there's no painting in church or, or whatever, you know, don't worry, we'll go back to regular old, you know, Sundays soon enough. So, uh, but this, this, I believe that art, dance, music, uh, paint uh, speaks to a different part of our heart. And I think that we have uh, many times uh, intellectualized the gospel uh, way too much. And what I'm hoping is that uh, through uh, God's Word and, and, and through Carol using her gifting uh, as, as an artist that maybe you'll experience God in a new way this evening. 
So before we uh, start, I'm just going to pray and uh, we'll jump into it. Dear God, just uh, thank you for this uh, evening and this opportunity to talk about what we're meant to be about, and that's the good news, the gospel. And God, I just pray that we can be people of the gospel, that we don't fall into the trap of trying to save people because only you do that, and that we invite people into being disciples of you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So, again, our job is not to make converts, and I, and I know that that makes some people nervous, but the mission that God gave us, that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28 was, uh, was to go forth and make disciples and to teach them and baptize them and to invite them into community. And that is a large role of what we are to do. And this gives us the, the, the context of, of, of the difference between a, a conversion, kind of trying to convince people to convert to the religion of Christianity versus inviting them into a relationship with the one true living God. And I believe that there's a difference in how you present it when you, when you think about it that way. If you're trying to convert somebody, you actually a lot of times have to revert back to the original sin of I. And you tell people, this is what you will get out of this. That, you know, you will be saved, that, that you will get to go to heaven, that, that you will be happy, that you will have, have joy. And even though those things may be true, it, it feeds into something that is not the whole truth. And that's what we started this whole series with. And what I want to do is actually uh, spend some time talking about, you know what, what is our task? As people of the gospel, what are we called to do? And I think Paul does a great job in 2 Corinthians of kind of encapsulating that. Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and starting in verse 18, says, God has given us the task of reconciling people to Him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us when we, when we speak for Christ and we plead, come back to God. And I believe that that word come back to God is an allusion actually to something extremely important. Come back to God, come back. What, is it, what does that mean, come back to God? And I think of that as a, a reference to the ideal state. Unlike today, we don't understand and have never experienced the ideal state. But I believe in Genesis that we're painted a very beautiful picture of what God originally intended for his relationship with people and our relationship with him and creation. And the first kind of clue of what the ideal state is is found in Genesis chapter 1 in verse 26. And it's recorded, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Remember, God is love. And if God is love, God is relational. And who was God in relationship with before he created the earth and people? And 
himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And then he says, these humans will reign over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And here, this shows the ideal partnership between God and man and creation. And this is the beauty. And then in verse 16, it continues to kind of paint this picture of the ideal relational foundation of choice. God said this, he said, you know what? I've created all of these things and you can eat freely out of anything in the garden. You may eat of every fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. And I think that right here we have the foundation of relational wholeness because you cannot be forced into a relationship and have it be real. I mean, think about, uh, you know, your Verizon mobile phone, you know, try to get out of that contract, right? You know, you may have like got converted to Verizon, but you know, they got their hooks in you and it's very painful to to convert to AT&T or something like that, even if their service is horrible. And that's, you know, that's a wrong way to think about this. Think about the healthy relationships that, that you've been in, that there's a commitment to them and there's a commitment to you. But there's a choice, and I think that this is so beautiful and, and so important. That God made all of this and, and said to the man and to the woman, enjoy it. You know, eat of the fruit of all this, eat this apple, eat a kumquat, eat, eat, you know, a fig. They're good. I love figs and Greek yogurt. It's good. You know, all this stuff, but, but he says, you know what? I, I want to give you a choice, though. And here's the choice. You can, you can be in relationship with me, and I am holy. And you can be in this holy relationship. And you can be in a partnership with me and, and, and help take care of all of this creation. But I but in order for this relationship to be real, I have to give you a choice. A choice to say, you know what? I don't want that. That I would rather have something else. And that's why God put the tree of good and evil right in the middle, uh, knowledge of good and evil, right in the middle of the garden. Not because he was trying to trip them up, but to give a relational choice to people. And then the next one, I think, it, uh, is the, uh, the ideal of relational space. And in the, in the ideal state, we have relational space to uh, discover things on our own. And I think that this is shown in, in uh, Genesis 18. Then God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And, he, and the man chose to name each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds, and all the sky, and all the wild animals. But there was still no helper just right for him. So basically what, you're, what we have here in the ideal state of the original ideal state of what God 
created was this, this, this foundation of choice and of partnership and of love. And then also giving Adam the opportunity to, to understand that he was in need for fellowship. He was there choosing or, or picking and naming the animals. You know, you like see the giraffe go by and he's like, I'm going to call that a giraffe. And then, and oh, check that out. There's a male and female giraffe. They seem to like each other a lot. That's cool. And then like, you know, the rhinos come by and he's like, that's cool. I like rhinos, you know, and, and wow, you know, the rhinos like each other a lot and they're, they're you know, two of a kind and, and, and all this. And he keeps on seeing this and then eventually he's like, wait a second, I don't have anyone like me. I don't have a partner. Why, is, why, why do the rhinos get partners? And I don't get a partner. Why the giraffes? Why the zebras? Why, why does everybody have the, you know, their, their, their counterpart to fulfill you know, just kind of their, their, their design to, to uh, reproduce and grow and, and bless? So this is what God did. Once, at, uh, once the man realized his need, he made him fall asleep and... and in the in the in the narrative tells of how how he takes the rib out of him and and forms woman and then when he wakes up he exclaims at last at last there is woman much better than rhino or ape or or whatever woman and and he's like mad in love and and you begin to see this ideal relationship of man and woman Co-equals in the, in the ideal state. And then finally, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8, we get the, I think this completes the picture of the ideal state. Even though this is after the man and the woman had uh, chosen their own selfish desires over the desires of God. God comes in and says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord among the trees. And this idea, again, that, that the ideal state is God with his people. That walking, this ideal state of walking in the garden, walking together Man and woman and God and in harmony with creation. But as we all know, that's not the choice that the man and the woman made. The choice the man and woman made, and we don't know if it was a week or a month or, or a billion years they were in the garden before they chose something else. But there was a time where, where uh, Satan came and we see this in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say that you must not eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? And she replies, Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It is only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. 
God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God. Knowing both good and evil. And what was the original sin? It wasn't eating an apple. It wasn't even eating the the fruit. It was this desire that, you know what? My relationship with God, Him being God, and, and me being in His splendor, and me being the steward of creation, it wasn't enough. And this temptation of saying, you know what? I can be like God. Not only just be in His image, but I will be God. I will be captain of my own destiny, leaping from tree to tree, you know, with with the man by my side and, and, and all this kind of stuff, and we won't need God anymore. And it's a temptation that we all have. We think, oh, you know what, if I won the lottery, I wouldn't need a job, and I could be any thing I wanted to be. And you might sprinkle a little spirituality on it and say, and I definitely tithe with that, which I would encourage. Come on. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's in all of us, and that's the sin of I. And once that the man and the woman bought into the sin of I, bought into this idea that, you know what, I can be like God. God comes, and He doesn't come in, you know, like a bad episode of Cops. That, that He comes in and He walks, He comes into the, the gentle breeze, and He calls out to them. And then He explains like a loving parent to a child the consequence of what they had done. And this is what He said. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, saying this to the woman, and the pain and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And the man and to the man he said, Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All of your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. You see what happened? You had this ideal state of relational space and and beauty and harmony and equality and partnership with God. And because of the sin of I, that God comes in and says, you know what? I am holy, and you have chosen. And I gave you that choice to make, and it breaks my heart. And here's the consequences of that, that you can no longer be in my unfettered presence because what is holy cannot be with what is not holy. That, you know what, this partnership and this purity of, of creation, you have allowed sin to come in. And now we are all cursed. 
But the cool thing is about our God, and I think that this is one of the coolest things that, that our God, uh, one of the characteristics of God, right in the middle of this curse, right in the middle of Him saying, you know what? You guys have blown it, and you've blown it big time. That, that this ideal state, it's gone. But I will make a way. I will make a way for the ideal state to come back. And he gives this blessing within the curse. In verse 15, he says, and I will, he's talking to the serpent, and I will cause hostility between you and the serpent and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And this is one of the cool things that even though the man and the woman had made a, unholy pact with, with, with Satan at this point. That God says, you know what? This is not permanent. In fact, I'm going to cause hostility between you two as well. That you don't own them. I still love them. And through her, I will bring another. And that, that other will restore the ideal state again. So, for after thousands of years from, uh, from Adam and Eve, their sin names, their, their cursed names, you have humanity growing up. And I understand this uh, uh, in a way that, that a father would understand it, that you give your children rules, you give your children laws. And you, really the laws are not the point, the laws are to help grow them and mature them and have them understand how to be responsible and their need for instruction. And for thousands of years, humanity tried to, through different kind of ways, reclaim their right position with God. And then when the time was right, when humanity was ready, God called a man named Abram. And he called Abram out of uh, the desert, and he called him to be the father of a new nation, the people of Israel. And through those generations and through him came another man who came and saved the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt, and that man was Moses. And God gave Moses the law to the children of Israel, much like a parent, your parent, gave you laws, rules growing up. And there was actually 613 laws of Moses. There's a whole lot. I know that like the Big Ten, like that's the famous one because, you know, uh, uh, Charlton Heston made a movie about it and everything, but there's actually 613 laws. And and these laws were given to show people how to have a right relationship with God, how to have a right relationship with people, and how to manage creation and, and be good stewards of creation. But the law was not meant uh, to be a checklist, you know, a daily checklist where you go down and you're like, all right, 612, 613, got it, self-realized holiness, you know, I'm good. That was not the point. In fact, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were. 
But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Or he actually answers the question in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And I'm asked all the time, do, do Christians need to obey the law? And Paul writes this. He says, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise, the promise that God will restore us to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through the angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and people. And this is the beautiful thing. That this makes sense now that we understand in the context of the story of, of Israel when Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. What is he talking about? It's, it's just like when you come into maturity and you realize that, you know, when your, your parents told you not to, you know, play with fire, that they weren't making a law against fire. They weren't saying that fire is bad. Fire is good. What they were saying is, you know what? There's a danger thing, and you're not mature enough to understand that danger right now, so we have to say, no, you don't mess with fire. But when you come into maturity, you understand that it, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with fire. It had everything to do with love. Their love for you and your well-being and your you're growing up to be able to come and handle fire in a mature manner. And that's at this point when humanity was ready, when they saw that they couldn't fulfill, they couldn't fulfill themselves and make themselves righteous and holy through the 613 laws, when they had exhausted their, their preconceived notions of, of them making themselves holy, and right in God's eyes. And they cried out for this Messiah to come. Then that is when God came. And a new time of grace was ushered in. And we are told by one verse uh, in John 3.16, in verse 17, that for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. For those who believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then in verse 17, continues, says, God sent His Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. And over those next three-ish years, that Jesus came and showed us how to live, how to interact with religious zealots, how to interact with darkness, how to be people of love, of people of harmony, people who uh, are freed from the sin of I. And then during Passover, the Lamb of God was slain to pay for our sins. Because part of the law was, uh, and, and the Passover was a celebration of the Israelites leaving Egypt, and their homes were passed over on judgment because they wiped the blood of the lamb on their, on their doors. And here we have in, in the atonement in Jesus' uh, death on the cross, 
the ultimate sacrifice, that there are no more sacrifices that need to be made. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, Paul writes, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoings. For it is written in Scripture, cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. And here we have again that, that scripturally that we have this understanding that, that Christ took our sins, our sin of I, upon himself. And I don't believe that we fully realize what that entailed. And I don't believe that we'll really fully understand that until we are back in the presence with God. But this is one thing that I know, is what is unholy cannot be with what is holy. What is unpure cannot be with purity. And I believe that by sin and paying that price of the law, that Jesus who from Genesis 2 and 1 that, that we saw who they together were in perfect harmony, perfect relationship because God is love was separated from that relationship, separated from that love because of the willing choice to take our sins upon Him. But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. Because three days later, after He was put in a tomb that He rose again, and he conquered death. And the resurrection is what changes everything. Because we do not serve a, a dead philosopher or a dead teacher. We do not follow uh, a good person or a prophet. But we follow the one true living God, and He is alive today, and that has implications that far outstretch what we could ever imagine. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul puts it this way, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God. For when we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And then check this out in the last couple of verses. And if Christ has not been raised then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. I'm going to tell you one of my pet peeves. It drives me crazy. When people say that Christianity is good principles to live by, and you can have a better life if you live by those Christian principles. It's foolishness. It is mistaking what we're meant to do. And if we are following Christian teachings, the religion of Christianity, because it is easier in North America, 
because we live in the South and that, you know what? The cha- you know, the, you pray at the Chamber of Commerce and we're the only state in the nation that has a chapel in our chapel, chapel in our capital. I think that's right, but I have no idea. Chapel in our capital. That's weird. That, 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 you know what? We say, you know what? I'll do that. I know I have a dear friend who used to go to a Baptist church and he, and he moved churches and he lost about half of his business because he didn't go to that Baptist church anymore. Would it have been easier to go by the Baptist principles and, and toe the line so him and his family would have a better life in this life? Well, Paul's saying, you know what? That's foolishness. If you're only following Christ because you think it's going to make your, this, this earthly life better, then you're being ridiculous. You're completely missing the point. Because we are not people of the law. We are not people of principles. We are a people of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are disciples, not converts, of Jesus. And it was out of that resurrection that He came to His disciples and He gave us the great mission of the church, which we began this talk with, that we are to go and make disciples and to baptize them into community and to teach them how to live as Christ lived. And One of the cool things is that we don't have to do this alone. In fact, it is impossible for us to do this alone. Because when we become disciples of Christ, that we are told that we get the Holy Spirit in us. That we actually have God indwell in us and empower us. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 26, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I told you. And then Paul talking about the Holy Spirit that indwells us and empowers us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, your spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He will give your life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. To me, it blows me away the thought That the same Spirit that created everything that we know, that has been in perfect harmony and we know as God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and dwells in His disciples. And this Spirit is our advocate. This Spirit is our guide. This Spirit is with us always. And that there is nothing that we cannot do if God has called us to do it. And when we have finally fulfilled the mission of the church of making disciples, not converts, but making disciples of all the nations and baptizing them and teaching them how to love that that Christ will come 
back. And I call this moment the ideal state 2.0. That, that when Christ comes back and He calls His people and says, you know what? Good job, my good and faithful servants. Good job, my disciples, that you have fulfilled the mission that you, I have called you to do. And this is what is ushered in, that we, you are now going to experience a new heaven and a new earth. And John talks about this in Revelation chapter 21. And he's a new holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard from a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. When did that happen before? The garden. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye and there will be no more death and no more sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And I love the beauty of this, and I love the, the imagery of the wedding, because so often the gospel is presented as a stick, turn or burn. You want to get some fire insurance? You know what? If you don't say this prayer with the correct pauses, that you are going to burn in hell. And that's not the gospel that we see in the Bible. The gospel that we see in the Bible is of a wedding. And what happens in a wedding? That you have a commitment of, of two people, a commitment that I will be faithful to you and you will be faithful to me. And you think about the wedding vows of, you know, in sickness and in health and in, you know, good times and in bad, in riches and in poor. It has nothing to do with a destination. It has everything to do with a commitment of love to one another. And I believe the biblical view of the gospel looks more like a wedding ring than a stick or a list of instructions on how to get from point A to point B. And I believe in the past hundred years in North America, when the gospel begins and ends with the cross and begins specifically with you are a sinner and you need to be forgiven. Although that is true, it is not the whole truth. Because the whole truth begins at the garden. That it begins with, you know what? You have been created for God's splendor. You have been created to be in the unfettered presence of God, to be the partner of God in all His beauty, in all of creation. And But for this relationship to be real, that God has given us a choice. And we have all chosen poorly in our lives. You know it's true. All things aren't great. We make good decisions. We make bad decisions. Usually those bad decisions, if you think about it all, centered in the sin of I. I want this for myself. I want that. I want this. I deserve that. 
And what the cross does is it covers that sin of I and, and, and Christ takes it upon himself. And that we are invited back to come back to God. To come back to the ideal state, which is not a garden and it's not a city. Although those two things are true. What makes heaven, heaven is us being in the unbuffered presence of God. To have creation restored in a new heaven and a new earth. And you know what the other thing is? We get to be with each other. And you know what? I think a lot of times people have this misconception. It's like, well, although that person's a Christian, I don't like that person. And the thought of being in eternity with that person would be hell. Right? Okay, I'll say that. Because you guys are all holier than thou, and you love everybody and everything. All right, fine. Okay, I'll just tell you. You know what? There are some people who I believe in heaven are going to be in heaven. I don't like them. Is that clear enough? There are some preachers out there that I believe will be in heaven, and every time they speak, I believe they make my calling harder. Okay? Clear enough? Okay. Let me tell you the cool thing that I believe. When that day comes and that I am restored and my brokenness is healed and that person is restored and their brokenness is healed, that we will be able to see each other for the first time in our ideal state too, without our brokenness, without our, our sin of I. And to be able to not see that person with my eyes, but to see that person with God's eyes as someone who has been in creation, who had been created to partner with God, to be in fellowship with God, and to be in perfect fellowship with us. And that, my friends, is the whole gospel of Jesus Christ.